Amen. God is for us. So good. I love singing that lyric with all of you. You know, we love and cherish that truth from Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can stand against us? This morning, we have sung songs of victory. You guys like that victory in Jesus, I could tell. I thought about singing God Always Wins this morning, but it, it just, it's just so much better with six or 700 kids singing, one, two, three, four, victory in Jesus. So much better. Not to, you know, not to put you all down at all. We love singing those victorious songs. It, it fits our paradigm. It's, it's something that we can identify with, this victorious in Christ paradigm. It's, it's a positive perspective. It's encouraging. And listen, it's true. We should sing these songs. But as we come to Lamentations chapter 2 this morning, this poetic response to the complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem the temple, and the people of God. I often wonder what their response would be if they heard the songs we just sang. God is for us? They'd probably groan. They might even scoff. God is for us? Are you serious? Look around. You know, often when I'm, I'm praying with someone at the hospital or praying with someone who's enduring a, a season of suffering, I often pray the words that Thomas Walters read earlier. Lord, be for them a very present help in time of trouble. Be for them a refuge and a strength. We, we hear of a God in that psalm, Psalm 46, who, who makes wars to cease who breaks the bow and shatters the spear of the enemy. But what if? What if it feels like God hasn't broken the bow of the enemy, but has instead drawn back His almighty bow and settled the pen and pointed that arrow right at you? What if instead of a very present help in time of trouble, God seems like very real and active enemy. How should we respond when, when it doesn't feel like God is for us, but is instead very much against us? How should we respond when God is not a present help in time of trouble, but seems like an enemy to us? How should we respond when our cries for mercy are met with silence? These are questions we are going to wrestle with this morning as we turn to Lamentations chapter 2 because these are precisely the questions the survivors of the destruction of Jerusalem are dealing with in our text. I'd like to do something a little bit different this morning. We always, and rightly so, we always stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God, but today I want our posture this morning to reflect the desperation, the sorrow, the lamentation of this Word from God. So I want to invite you just to remain seated in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And I'm going to read this entire chapter 
all 22 verses. And as I do, I want you to, to feel its sorrow. Lamentations 2. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. How He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In His wrath, He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them His right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent His bow like an enemy with His right hand set like a foe. And He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out His fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste His booth like a garden. Laid in ruins His meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in His fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned His altar disowned His sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain His hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He's ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit around, uh, sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where's the bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your daughters, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. 
This is the city that was called. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what He purposed. He carried out His word which He commanded long ago. He is thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. <coughs> Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before You and ask for Your wisdom this morning as we approach this, this, this difficult text. Sorrowful text. I pray that... Uh, this text, and You, Father, would not leave us at the end of this a hopeless people, but that You would turn our hearts to, to Christ Himself. Lord, be exalted in the preaching of Your Word this morning. In Christ, Amen. <clears throat> you know, whew, it's a heavy text, isn't it? We're not very good at suffering. Nobody likes to suffer. Very, very... Rarely do we suffer well. You know, we're, we're, we're much better at sort of deflecting suffering. We're, we're much better at maybe ignoring it. Let's just sort of sweep it under the rug. Let's pretend it's not there. Let's just get through this. You might be guilty like I have been to say things like, let's just move on. I'm okay. We're going to be okay. Things are going to be alright. Or... I just don't want to talk about it. You know, sometimes instead of suffering and facing suffering head on, we, we deflect it, we ignore it. We, we might even tend to try to put a positive spin on what's going on. But listen, church, no matter how you spin Lamentations chapter 2, there is no possible way we could, we could spin this in a positive way. The sun will not come out tomorrow. Instead, they're under a cloud. A cloud of misery. And while they long for, for God's face to shine upon them, it is woefully apparent in verse 1 
that the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. They were living in a shadow. Living in darkness. This wasn't merely a result of the cruelty of the Babylonians. This wasn't somehow an accident. This wasn't as if God was somehow incapable of preventing this circumstance to befall His people and His city. The horrors of Lamentations 2 are magnified when they come to grips with the fact that they are in the situation that they're in because their covenant Lord has brought this situation upon them. As a result of their willful sin against the Most High, their blatant and repeated refusal to believe in the Lord and obey His commands, there they sit among the rubble, among the ruin. Some of them were, were faintly weeping. They're starving to death. Some of them were simply silent. But all of them were confronted with the horrifying truth that we read in Lamentations 2, verse 5, that God had become like an enemy to them. If you're keeping notes this morning, our outline is is progressive in nature. It builds on itself. So our first point this morning is when the Lord is like an enemy. Verses 1-16. through These, These words are hard for me to say. God, like an enemy? It almost feels sacrilegious. But this is the horrific truth, the reality that our text this morning causes us to wrestle with. He has, verse 4, bent His bow like an enemy. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. And there they are, among the ruin, among the, the rubble of the city, the once beautiful city. There's dead bodies strewn around and rotting corpses. Listen, I'm not going to sugarcoat this at all. You can read the account in, in 2 Chronicles. You can read what would befall them in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Some of those corpses weren't bodies anymore. They were skeletons. Because those who were in, besieged within the walls of the city literally cannibalized those that had fallen in order to survive. You can't sugarcoat this! This is awful! This is atrocious! They're confronted with the reality that it seemed as if at this moment in their lives, God had become to them like an enemy. It's a punch in the gut. Look at our text. Verse 1, He has cast down Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy. He has broken down. He has brought down. Verse 3, He has cut down. He has withdrawn. He has burned. Verse 4, He has bent His bow. He has killed. He has poured out His fury like fire. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. We could keep going. The next five verses are much the same. The Lord is the subject of every sentence. He is the agent, the cause of every new destruction revealed. The the, the text crescendos in such a way. Uh, Jeremiah, it's almost as if he's 
he's looking out at the, the ruin of this city and he's describing it for us. And, 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 the, and the description grows in its severity. Uh, the city is trampled down. The temple is torn down along with uh, where the Ark of the Covenant God's footstool was. His people have been decimated. Festivals and Sabbath, king and priests. His altar where, where people would approach God, where God would atone for the sins of His people. The altar is destroyed. Forgiveness is no more. No longer possible. The word from the Lord is no word at all. It's silent. His prophets have no word from God. By the time we get to verse 10, we see the utter hopelessness of the situation. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their head and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Everything's affected. By the time we get to verse 11, there's a, there's a shift in the text here. Uh, up until this point, Jeremiah has been describing for us what he's seen, the situation before all of them. But in verse 11, it changes to first person. Jeremiah begins to share personally how this has affected him. Verse 11 reads, My eyes are spent with weeping. What's he saying there? I've cried so many tears, there are no longer any tears left to cry. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground. You all know what that means. Have you ever, have you ever gotten news or, or seen something so horrific that immediately you became ill? Your stomach began to churn. Maybe even vomiting. That's where Jeremiah was. As he looked on the hopelessness of the situation, these survivors, these children, walking around the city, crying out for food, for they were so hungry, they faint like wounded men in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Guys, you can't sugarcoat this. Things are as bad as they possibly can be. By the time we get to verse 13, Jeremiah is longing for something to tell the people. Some word of comfort to assuage their suffering. But nothing, he knows nothing that he could say could possibly help. Their ruin, it says, is as vast as the sea. There are those that have something to say. You know, False prophets, verse 14, they always have something to say. 2 Peter chapter 2 reminds us that their words are like mist driven by the storm. It's misleading. It's false. Nothing they say can help. Those that pass by have something to say. Verse 15, they clap their hands, they hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? Psalm 48, 1. The enemies of Israel have something to say. Verse 16, they hiss 
They rail against you. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. This is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. They're gloating in victory. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, who for 52 chapters just prior to this moment had a ton to say. At this moment in Israel's history, he's left utterly speechless. Speechless. Nothing he can say can bring any comfort to those survivors in that wrecked city. No tears left to cry. No acid in his stomach left to vomit. He and all around him were completely laid bare, humbled, undone, for the Lord had become like an enemy. Guys, this is, this is a hard text. You don't know how much I'd like to, to share a story that's kind of funny to see you all smile. <laughs> I would love that. To, sort of, to break the ice of the despair that we're confronted with here, but I cannot. I should not if I'm going to be faithful to the text before us today. So, so church, we've got to be confronted with suffering. This, this dissonance and this difficulty of suffering, it seems to be at, at odds with everything we long for. Suffering creates in our hearts a, a friction of faith in a God who is, as we just sang, for us. What do we do? How do we respond when the circumstances of our lives make it seem like as if God is like an enemy? Well, I'm thankful that, and we should be thankful, none of us here have experienced what Lamentations 2 is discussing. You know, the atrocities here are, are hard to comprehend for us, and we, we're thankful for that. But I'm not going to stand up here and in some way minimize your suffering this morning. To suffer is to be Christian. To suffer is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I love what Philippians 1.29 says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. We've got a Savior who carried a cross of suffering and He beckons us to do the same. All of us have or will certainly suffer for His name's sake. All of us will experience some time or season in our lives when it feels like God is like an enemy. Maybe it's that time when you get the news from the doctor. It's terminal. Maybe it's someone in your family who's destroying his or her life with addiction. Maybe you're Wondering if your spouse is going to recognize you, that spouse that's suffering from Alzheimer's. Maybe when you're let go after 26 years on the job. Maybe it's when that, that heart of that beautiful baby inside of your womb suddenly and without cause stops beating. Those are all circumstances. Each one of those examples I just listed are things that some of you are right now experiencing. 
there have been or will be times when all you can do is sit in silence, sit in despair. There aren't any tears left to cry. There's no comforting word to be heard. All you can do is cry out at that moment the word of lamentation. How, God? How? I don't understand. I'm so confused. What are you doing, God? Why are you silent? When the Lord is like an enemy, it's at that moment we've got to trust, we've got to cling tenaciously to this next point in our text. And that point is, we must trust that, that He has a purpose for your suffering. Trust that He has a purpose for your suffering. Look at, look at verse 17. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word. Mm. Boy, it's not something that changes anything in the midst of the circumstance. You might not even want to hear this right now. You're in the midst of suffering and you think, well, that doesn't help me any. To know that God has a purpose for my suffering changes nothing in the moment. That's why we've got to fight to believe it. You've got to cling to this truth that, that God is doing something in your life. Something you probably don't even understand at the moment. But He is at work bringing about His purposes through your suffering. In our text in Lamentations 2.17, God is bringing about, He's performing His purpose of simply carrying out His Word. We're not going to do this because we don't need to, but, but this, this verse refers to, it says, um, He has carried out His Word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. This verse is referring to a promise that God made through His prophet Moses way back before they ever entered the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you want to write this down, read it. Uh, 28 verses 15 through 45. What's listed there are, are things that mirror exactly what we just read in Lamentations Chapter 2, God is doing what He promised. He is a promise-keeping God, and therefore He is fulfilling His purposes. But, but there's way more to His purpose, church, than just pouring out His wrath and anger on His people. He and His purposes are shaping them. He is turning their hearts back to Him. You know, that's not, that's not anything new to us that read the Bible. God often uses suffering to uniquely perform His purposes in our lives. I think of one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Joseph, way back in Genesis. His brother sold him into slavery. He had decades of suffering in and out of prison. Uh, just awful, awful things happened to Joseph. And at the end of his life, he looks at his brothers who decades before sold him into slavery, and he said, you know what, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. God is performing through His suffering His purposes. <clears throat> you know, some of you all have Jeremiah 29.11 as your life verse. You guys know that verse? For I know. You can probably quote it. 
(laughs) For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. My question to you, and I'm I'm not disparaging that if that's your life first. I'm not discouraging you. I want to encourage you though to embrace to whom Jeremiah was saying those words. Jeremiah was saying those words to these starving and suffering survivors in the wrecked city of Jerusalem. That should change the way we we read and understand that verse because often the plans of hope and a future, the plans for good and not for evil, only ever come to be realized and understood after great times of suffering. Through suffering. God forces us to cling to Him as our only hope. And mark it down. God has a purpose for your pain. But even as you write that down, make this note beside it, His purpose will not be accomplished apart from your pain. We've got to fight, church, to believe that truth. What God is accomplishing through the suffering you endure can only be accomplished through the suffering you endure. There is not any other way. How, however bad we want to kind of circumvent the process. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we want to f- hit the fast forward button on God's process. Lord, I, you're like, uh, I get it now. I understand what you're trying to teach me now, God. Let's just get through this. Uh, we'll, we'll keep moving on. That's not how God works. God uses God uses lament as the process to lead to true change, true holiness, true repentance, true fruit. You know, turn in your Bibles. Pastor David referred to this even last week, Hebrews chapter 12, when he reminded us that God disciplines those whom he loves. But what I want to highlight here is the fact that that God is through that discipline, through that suffering, while it's painful in the moment, it is producing something in your life. Verse 11 says, chapter 12 of Hebrews, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's no secret that I love trees. I can't preach a sermon without referring to trees. <laughs> I've got a, a little piece of property in Madison County that uh, about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago now, I planted a whole bunch of trees. I tr- planted apples and pears and cherries and chestnuts and pawpaws and all kinds of trees, just delicious trees. <sighs> Every year, I go out there during the wintertime and I do something that that seems completely counterproductive to what would 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 what to what you would think would need to happen. I take my pruning shears and I go up to those apple trees and I start to cut limbs off of these beautiful, glorious trees. And I'm thinking, man, it took years for that limb to grow. And here I am cutting it off. And in a way, I'm injuring the tree i'm hurting the tree but i'm doing so with a purpose because i know as a master conservationist <laughs> i know <laughs> just, 
I didn't totally shouldn't have said that. I know that by harming that tree, I'm really enabling it to bear more fruit. What 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 happens when God disciplines us and the the chastising grace is poured out on us is that He is in some way injuring us so that verse 12 of Hebrews or verse 11 Hebrews chapter 12 is is fulfilled that the peaceful fruit of righteousness is born out in our lives. We've got to fight to believe that church. God's purpose is accomplished in your pain. It's here in our text. In this moment of utter despair when there are no tears left to cry, no word of comfort to be heard, no, no, no bile left to spill, that the cries of the survivors in the city are then finally turned to the Lord. Let's look at verses 18-20. through 20. They're calling upon His name. <clears throat> their, their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger in the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. When the Lord is like an enemy, trust He has a purpose and call upon His name. You see the, the change in direction here? Uh, up until this point, the direction of their cries seemed to be sort of aimless. So, sort of wandering, maybe wallowing in the sorrow of their situation, and rightly so. But by the end of the chapter, their cries are turned upward. We, we have a sense of desperation here. And in the dissonance of the scene before us, they cry out to the very One who brought these circumstances upon them. God, who is like an enemy in verse 5, has become to them in verse 20 their only hope. Look, Lord, and see. What do they do? They Evoke the very covenant name for the Lord. Lord in your Bibles here is, is capitalized. It's the word for the covenant name of God, Yahweh. They're saying, look, O promise-keeping God of Israel. Remember your covenant with your people, O God. And they ask a question as they look around at the horror of the situation. Have you ever dealt thus with anyone? No longer is God their enemy. He is their only hope. It's, it's intriguing to realize as we get to the end of this lament that at verse 22, nothing has changed. Their situation is the exact same as it was in verse 1, but something has indeed changed. It's not their situation. It's them. They have changed. God has taken and used His, His chastising grace and has done what He has purposed. He's turned the hearts of His people back to Him. And for the first time, 
in a long time, His people are crying out to the Lord. Look, O Lord, and see. Church, if, if God's purposes are ever going to be realized in your own life, this is a necessary first step. It's, it's right in our text. We've got this progression. God like an enemy. God performing His purposes and the hearts of His people turning to Him, crying out to Him. When disaster strikes, when God seems like an enemy, when you're in the midst of suffering, you've got this choice before you. You could, you could wallow in self-pity, turn your heart inward, which, which leads to pride, lends itself to pride, which, which cries out to the Lord, I don't deserve this! Or you could, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the silence, you cry out to Him, Lord, look, see, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, as one of your shepherds here at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, I beseech you, choose the latter. Call out to Him. Cry out for mercy. When the Lord is like an enemy, trust He has a purpose and call upon His name. Church, you're never alone in that cry. Some 600 years after this moment, there was a man, the God-man, walking these same streets. Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The wall had been rebuilt. The temple had been rebuilt. And Jesus, as, as they were looking at the, the grandeur of this temple, said, hey, destroy this temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Just a few days later, we find this same Christ alone in a garden, and crying out to His Father, Lord, take this cup from Me. Yet not My will, but Yours be done. He cried those words three times, and the text never once gives us an answer from the Father. Silence! On the other end, just a few short hours later, as Jesus was nailed to an instrument of torture, He cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? What's happened? His own Father had become like an enemy to Him. Just as the daughter of Zion were under a cloud in Lamentations 2, verse 1, darkness covered the face of the earth as Jesus hung on that cross. The scene on the cross is much like the scene in Lamentations chapter 2. Passerbys hissed and shook their heads. Mockers spat out. He saved others. Let him save himself. Let's see if he really is who he claimed to be. They hissed. They gnashed their teeth at Him. And Jesus, the Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, cried out to His Father, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. He cried out with His last breath, it is finished. The debt has been paid in full. 
And He gave up His Spirit. The purposes of God were realized and fulfilled in the suffering of Jesus Christ. God was for Himself through the cross of Jesus Christ redeeming and forgiving a people for His name. You're not alone in your suffering. You're not alone in your cries for mercy. In your, in your suffering and in your cries of, for mercy, perhaps you can quote Lamentations 2.20, Look, Lord, and see with whom have You dealt thus? And then our eyes need to shift to the cross of Jesus Christ and we need to see a crucified Savior in our place. And we need to say, Look, Lord, You have dealt thus with Your own Son so that I might be forgiven. And then our cries need to change. We need to cry out, may I too bear patiently the cross of grief and pain. May I too endure the cross and despise its shame for the joy set before me. So church, when God is like an enemy, trust He has a purpose for your pain and call upon His name. God is... For us. He proves it with the cross of Jesus Christ. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful that You have proven the fact that You are for us and always will be by becoming an enemy to Your own, like an enemy to Your own Son. Lord, we're thankful for Christ and His sufferings. We pray that You'd help us this day even, to identify in His sufferings. To, to cry the same cries, but to trust the same Lord who promises never to leave or forsake us. Lord, we're thankful. And I pray, Father, that You would turn our hearts to You as we wrestle with this Word this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen.